Welcome to episode 124. Today, we conclude our SLIFE series with Leslie Garcia to learn how she designs mutually adaptive and culturally sustaining instruction, specifically for SLIFE. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Cloud has... This is one of the clearest, most eloquent and teacher-friendly conversation about SLIFE. Leslie Garcia will share her interpretation of Dr. Helene Marshall's and Dr. Andrea de Capua's MALP framework. Her explanation is accessible and succinct. The most important part of this conversation is when she talks to us about her geography unit designed with MALP principles. You can really see how she made the unit so relevant, comprehensible, and sustaining for students. This conversation was really like a master class or walking into or spending time in Leslie's class for an entire unit to see how we can design instruction for SLIFE. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so excited and honored today to introduce to you Leslie Garcia. She is a teacher and she has been highly recommended by the legendary Dr. Helene Marshall. So if someone has said, listen, Tan, you need to go talk to this person. And if she named you in particular, you're going to come on the podcast to share how you're working with SLIFE. So future Dr. Leslie Garcia, welcome, bienvenido to the podcast. Gracias, Tan. Gracias. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you so much. And thank you for the kind words. <laughs> Would you tell us about your context, your teaching context right now, where you are, where you find yourself? Yeah, of course. So I'm currently a middle school uh, life teacher at Waltham Public Schools in Massachusetts. Uh, so SLIFE for a lot of people who may not be familiar, but I'm sure a lot um, people have heard about it. It's a subgroup of multilingual learners uh, that have been identified as students with limited or interrupted formal education. Um, and this is the first year that our school district has a SLIFE program in the middle school level. So it's super exciting. Um, and I was chosen to sort of start this program. Um, so I teach students that are grades six through eight. Um, that are identified as life. So they're English language learners, but then also have been identified as life. Um, and in this program, I teach students English with a focus of literacy. And since majority of my students till December, majority of them were Spanish speakers and I'm a native Spanish speaker. Um, I'm able to also teach them um, uh, their native language literacy as well, which is, has been really amazing. Um, and I'm able to support in developing that as well as um, in addition to literacy in their native language, we also focus on English language development. Um, 
Um, and in addition to that, I also have been teaching students foundational math skills, such as addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. So I've been really, um, you know, honored to be working with our uh, math coach uh, because I don't have a math background. Um, and she's been definitely really helpful with teaching students basic numeracy and how can I approach that um, uh, in my life classroom. So that's what my teaching uh, context is currently. Could you, is it like a self-contained class? Like how does the program, what does the day look like for students, for SLIFE students? Yeah, so majority of their, um, their schedule, they spend it with me. We have three classes together. My sixth graders have um, an additional like study work, like organization period where they spend an extra hour with me, which is nicely because they, they get to get that undivided attention that they might not get when they're in the other classrooms um, with the other students from seventh and eighth grade. Uh, so yeah, so half of their schedule they spend with me. Uh, the students have a grade level math class um, that they take. So um, besides the ESL math that I provide them. And then they also are able to um, join a um, social studies class um, as well with like mainstream students. And then they are part of the FAPA. So like arts and music. Uh, so half of their schedule, they are in a contained classroom with me. Uh, but then when they go to math or social studies, I tend to push in into the social studies classes. Uh, so they get to see me and I get to support them and work with some of their teachers in that um, aspect as well. So um, so it's, it's really uh, it's not just with me, but majority of the time they have made that relationship with me and they know me. Um, so that's what most of their schedule is looking like. Spend half of it with Ms. Garcia and then the other they get to sort of um, go to different classrooms right. and get to be part of different, um, you know, school classrooms as well. So you're like their home base. They come to you and you spend so much time with them. And but you also they get to be integrated into the school and the school community. And you get to uh, shepherd them in their experience in their content classes as well. Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. And they know where to find my classroom, right? With life students, we are getting them sort of used to this new formal setting. And it's super different um, when we think about where our students are coming from and their school settings are just completely different to the way that they are here in, in the United States. And yeah, I, I love that you said home base because that really is what it is. Uh, they know how to find me. I know some of my sixth graders at uh, the school is ginormous for them. And every time they get lost, they know to come to Miss Garcia's room and I'm usually there and they're like, I, I thought I knew where I was going, but I don't. So can you please help me? Uh, so it's, yeah, it's definitely a home base and, and I'm always there. So it's nice. And they get to slowly be integrated into this new school setting too. And um, our school has been amazing um, with just really trying to welcome our students. And um, it, it's just, it's been really good. <laughs> I know they appreciate you, in particular that uh, you speak their language as well. You speak Spanish, and so they are able to connect with you in that way. So you said something earlier about uh, their background. So can you tell us about, like, just not in specifics, but in general, what are, what's that background like? Yeah, so majority of my students, so right now, currently, I have about nine students um, in the program. Um, and a lot of my students um, come from Guatemala. Um, and I, I want to say actually all eight 
eight of them. And then we got one new student um, who is a, um, uh, she's from Afghanistan, actually. Uh, she came in December um, and her, she's a sixth grade student and I love her to pieces, but majority of them are Spanish speaking, which was really nicely because I, I really am able to connect with them in a, um, and their families in a much deeper. And I am a native uh, Spanish speaker. I'm also from Guatemala. I was born in Guatemala. I came here when I was seven. So my experience has been a bit different, but uh, my students, uh, most of them are from Guatemala. Um, and then my one student that is from Afghanistan. Um, and a lot of them um, have been in the US for less than a year. Some of them have been here for almost two, uh, but majority of them are, are newcomers, as, as we say, to the, to the United States. And how are how is that one Afghani student interacting and working with the other um, Guatemaltecos? Yeah, Guatemalan Guatemaltecos, yeah. So I've been, so I was super nervous. I think I was more nervous than our, our student, um, to be 100% honest, but she has been, um, I think our community that we've built in our classroom um, from the very beginning, our students were super welcoming and they were super empathetic. Um, and they, it's, it's all of us, I think that they try to teach, help me be able to communicate with her and they've really took her under their wing. And, um, she has been really, um, I, I think that resilient in the sense where she, even with just facial expressions, she tries to connect with me and, and I try to, uh, communicate with her because again, our language and she has limited, um, oral skills in her native language as well. And, um, what's amazing with, uh, these students is that uh, there's a lot of different agencies really working with, um, these Afghani families, um, and really putting in that, um, work that outside, the classroom, I know that she's getting that support um, and she feels really comfortable and safe. And I think that that's the beauty of, um, of humans and just gestures and facial expressions that you don't really need language to really understand and feel um, that connection. And I think that I can, I can feel that for her. And I think that she's demonstrated that. And I think she's just really happy to be there. And I, I think that language really isn't a factor in our classroom um, when it comes to her. She really has easily fit into it and she's slowly learning. And I told her, you're even gonna learn uh, Spanish because uh, we speak some, you know, we do a lot of translanguaging. We go, I go back and forth with them. and. Um, yeah, so it, it's she has seamlessly been able to join wow. and integrate into our classroom, which is pretty cool too. Right. It's, about, it's about community, right? They have the similar experience of being yes. in a new country together and what that's like. Exactly, and they empathize with each other, and they're just like. And I constantly remind them, right? We are a community. We need to be helping each other. We don't have to be best friends outside of the classroom. I don't expect that, but I do expect us to have that mutual respect and willingness to help one another. Because if we don't help one another, you know, here or outside of our classroom, you know, we're left alone, right? And we're already, we don't wanna feel like that. So um, I think that, that I've made that point and my students have been amazing. and. They're an amazing group of students and I love them to pieces. So um, they were super welcoming to our, our Afghani student. Well, you created that culture of uh, welcoming. You modeled that as well. So let's uh, rewind a little bit and talk about your context. Like, how did you get here? Yeah, so it's been really interesting. And I was telling you earlier. So I am a very recent teacher. This is my third year um, as an actual uh, 
teacher, full-time teacher. Um, so I started off um, with a lot of different roles that I've taken on prior to being um, a select teacher where I am right now. So going back to college, um, and I was mentioning to you earlier, I am a first generation student. Um, so I was the first one to graduate college in my school um, and well, in my family. And I went to school um, here in Boston and I studied psychology. I really wanted to be like an adolescent therapist. I know I, I wanted to work with, with teenagers. Uh, so my senior year, um, I had the honor of interning for Dr. Mary Jo Rendon, who at the time was the retention and family engagement specialist at the district I'm working at right now. Um, and at the time, you know, and I had mentioned to you, I was still like um, what we call a dreamer. Um, I had not, you know, I, I first generation, a dreamer. So Having her as um, someone to intern for was amazing because Dr. Mary Jo Rendon, um, she is bicultural, um, uh, bilingual. You know, she comes she's she comes from a Guatemalan father, but a, a native um, um, mother from the United States. So she had she had already had so much experience, and she lived in Spain for so many years. Uh, so she had a lot. She, she was she's just amazing. And she was a great role model for me. And working with her really taught me a lot. And I continue to learn from her about being a Latina in the education uh, system and what that means and really um, uh, how important it is, the assets that I have, such as my being bilingual and bicultural. I didn't know that at the time, but she really helped me sort of discover that. So then after I interned for her, um, I started working as a special education paraprofessional because uh, Mary Jo Rendon was really my, in, uh, my introduction to this system of education. So I was able to graduate college and I got um, that position as a paraprofessional. And what paraprofessionals do is really, you are given the opportunity to follow special education students on IEPs. Um, and you get, what I really loved about that experience was that I got to see different classrooms and different teachers. Um, and this was really my first real introduction to the classroom and the school setting, um, which from the other side, right? Because I had always been a student. So it was, it was funny and weird. I, and I still find it weird to be on the other side now being the teacher. Um, so from there, I um, became, I got my certification to become a Spanish teacher. Um, and really, I owe this to Mary Jo Rendon, Dr. Mary Jo Rendon again, because she really pushed me uh, because my Spanish, I always thought, you know, was fine. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm bilingual, but really, um, I had to study and I realized, oh my goodness, my Spanish is very, you know, we talk about the different languages, right? There's social language, there's academic language and um, really studying to become a Spanish teacher that year really helped me reconnect to my native roots, I think. Um, as I said, I was born in Guatemala. I came here when I was seven years old. So like many, I assimilated to this culture, um, which left my Guatemalan identity, I feel like really repressed. Um, I knew it was always there, uh, but I never really like paid much attention to it, right? And um, so from teaching Spanish, Spanish and allowing myself to sort of um, reclaim this part of my identity, I feel like um, really helped me see that, you know, my Spanish was an asset, 
you know, because for so many years I tried to sort of focus on English, but Spanish really became um, sort of became in the forefront when I was studying to become a Spanish teacher. Um, so from there, it was the first time I realized that being bilingual was really an asset, as I said, and I wanted to do more uh, for students to see that right now, because I was in the classroom now and I wanted to be like, there's so many bilingual uh, native or second generation Spanish speaker students, and I want them to see what I just was able to discover now as a college graduate. Uh, so from there, the following year, and this was last year during COVID, I was offered that position to teach ESL. Um, and again, I went from paraprofessional to teaching Spanish to now teaching English as a second language. So I was like, ah, uh, like, okay, but there was a need and I just took it on and it was a roller coaster ride because COVID on itself was just insane. And, uh, but I really, from that experience, I really was able to tap into my own creativity. It really pushed me to think outside the box. And really, I think every teacher felt like that. We had to really get creative. And I learned so much from my students um, and their families in our community, because I think that teaching became more than just being in the classroom. It was just, I was so involved with like my students, their families, their needs, and like just what was happening in the community during COVID and, and this crazy pandemic. And then finally, last year, um, at the end of this, uh, of last year, I was offered this um, opportunity to start this life program at the middle school level. And to be 100% honest, I was very scared to take on the position. I felt like all the roles that I had taken, um, that I had had, um, was really had really prepared me for this opportunity. So I was scared, but I sort of had the courage to say, okay, I'm gonna do it. And during the same time um, that I accepted to start this program, I presented at Matsall. Um, and that's where Dr. Helene Marshall attended my presentation. Um, and she reached out personally and she said that she saw something in me. She really wanted to basically teach me about mouth and introduce me to this, uh, um, this paradigm. And from there, you know, her mentorship and her guidance uh, with mouth has really shaped my work and it continues to shape my work right now. So it's really, as I was telling you, it's amazing how just destiny has made things fall into place and um that's how i got here just like rumi said i think he said the thing we're look searching is searching for us right and so um live life as in as if the odds are in your favor and they are and so you're definitely showing that really very quickly very briefly what's a dreamer so dreamer is um students that have come to the well, young adults that have come to the United States or grown up in the United States, but they uh, don't have a legal status. Um, so I was a dreamer for so many years. Um, and, uh, you know, documentation was just very difficult for me to talk about, especially when we got to high school and college. And um, that's why going to college was definitely um, a roller coaster ride. And it's an experience that I'm never going to forget. And it's something that, you know, my heart goes out to all the first generation students trying to make it uh, because it wasn't easy. And yeah, being a dreamer, it was, you know, you constantly had to say yes. I, I'm, I, it seems like I was born here, but I, I'm, I wasn't. And um, yeah, so school was a bit difficult, but thankfully I was able to, you know, work on my documentation and my legal status um, prior to starting, you know, my teaching job, because that's what was my biggest fear 
of not being able to do anything with my college degree as a dreamer. Um, but thankfully, you know, I was able to um, work on that. So, And you're an example of immigrants contributing to our country and now your country. Yes. No, I, I say I'm like, I'm, uh, I'm from here, but I'm also from there. And, uh, you know, I was introduced to this idea of being bicultural. And I'm like, yes, that's the word. That's what I am. I am a little bit of, of that culture. I'm a little bit of this culture. And I've sort of adapted and transformed into who I am today. And um, so, yeah, America, this is my country. I've lived here majority of my life. I, you know, especially in Waltham. It's interesting because Waltham, I grew up in Waltham as well. Um, and now I'm teaching there. So I have the streets that my students are walking. You know, I have my own history of me being the same student as well. And I was an English learner uh, when I came to the U.S. as well. So it's just amazing that now I can go back. And um, I do aspire to inspire a lot more Latina educators and Latino educators as well. I, sh I know that you're planting seeds right now. Let's return back to uh, your work with Dr. Helene Marshall. So um, very quickly, could you talk about how you see uh, the MALP principles uh, of working with SLIFE? Um, so yes, yeah, so everything I do in my classroom really focuses on um, putting these uh, principles. And I just quickly want to give you an overview for everyone listening on what is MALP. I know Dr. Uh, Marshall did an amazing job with really talking about her book. Um, but really, I think that first of all, I'm humbled that she even mentioned me and that she, you know, she's working with me. I'm forever grateful for this opportunity. So education in the United States is really based on cultural assumptions, as Dr. Marshall always says. And these assumptions require like specific lenses. And the assumptions are that students believe in this promise of, you know, future reward for education. And that students are independent learners and that they want to pursue this individual excellence. This, um, I always say like this, this American dream of like being something bigger than what you are right now. And then students um, arrive with this age appropriate background in literacy um, and that they can demonstrate their master, like their, their uh, mastery of this literacy through print. Um, and that's really American, you know, Western style education's um, assumptions. And then that students are also are accustomed to and familiar with these Western style academic ways of thinking and school-based tasks that we ask them to do in our classrooms. So what MALP, um, you know, which stands for Mutually Adaptive Learning Paradigm, is an instructional model or framework that at its core for, focuses on culturally responsive and sustaining pedagogies. So they, it really aims to address these cultural assumptions that I just mentioned um, and how they really pres are presented as challenges for our SLIFE students in our classrooms because it creates this cultural disconnect or dissonance right, uh, from their learning environment. So we assume that these are their priorities and this is the lenses that they're looking at education from, but in reality, it's not, which really causes that disconnect in our classrooms. Um, so the first uh, principle in MALP is really adapt, accepting the students' learning conditions and environments 
and by keeping like relevancy and maintaining interconnectedness. Um, so when I think about that principle, I really think of the importance of building relationships with our students, um, student to student relationships, student to teacher relationships, student to community relationships. Uh, the two-way communication really allows for students to feel connected um, to each other, but then also to me, to their community, to their school in a much deeper and personal way, right? When we think of interconnectedness, I think of relationship building, right? And two-way communication with families as well. And then the other part of that is really keeping our instruction relevant. How is this connecting to their lives? How is this, you know, how are they going to be able to use this? Why is this important? You know, and our students, I think that are asking themselves these questions and are wondering that. And, um, you know, you get the middle school students saying, how is this going to be relevant in my life? You know, how, why is this important? But more than ever, I think this life students really, we need to be telling them that, like really showing them um, how this is connected to what they are living right now. And then the second principle of combining our students' familiar learning uh, process with this new unfamiliar learning process in our classrooms. So in other words, students come from collectivists. A majority of them come from collectivist cultures where they're learning through oral instruction. You know, they have their grandmother, their uncle really teaching them, orally giving them instructions, but then also putting it into practice. You know, I think of like, um, of myself growing up, you know, I know my brother had to milk the cow and I never got to do it, but, you know, milk the cow, you know, he literally got told how to do it. He showed it and he would do it. That was one of his jobs. So it, it's really putting things like that is learning and accepting their learning process. Whereas here in the, in their new educational setting, they're asked to learn through individual accountability. So they're super like, it's you, you just focus on yourself. And then written text, right? Literacy, like reading articles, writing. So text is so important here in the United States where in other countries and other cultures, it really that isn't like the, the most important um, way of communicating. Um, and then, so this principle I see is asking teachers to really combine these two learning processes um, in their instruction with constant scaffolding, right? Um, and then alternating between shared responsibility and individual accountability um, through different activities. So partner work, group work, whole class work, um, really building that community as, as you mentioned earlier. Um, so then students can master both and can feel comfortable with different uh, those different learning processes. And then the last principle really focuses on developing the academic ways of thinking that here in the United States, right, that oral discourse, that um, um, analyzing and, and compare and contrast, but then also providing scaffolds with familiar language and content for the students. Uh, so it's important for us as teachers to design like really explicit lessons I've learned um, and projects that develop these academic ways of thinking, uh, but we have to present these academic ways of thinking in a way that it's familiar um, uh, with, like the language is familiar, the content is familiar. Um, so then they, they fully understand, you know, what you're really trying to teach them, like, which is the academic way of thinking. Because this type of thinking, right, it, 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 in tasks, they're new to students. And it's important for us to really present and initially practice with them um, with content and language that is not new to them. Um, so we want to create lessons that students really encourage uh, to use all their language repertoires and they're able to translate language if they really need to, you know, work back and forth as they're learning English. 
Um, and then they're being um, sort of challenged to develop their English vocabulary as already and use what they already know. Um, and really talk about topics that they already know to really connecting it to their lives. And doing this really is going to allow the life students to really concentrate on the new decontextualized school tasks, such as compare and contrast, um, and develop new ways of thinking, but without having to really use all their cognitive energy on trying to figure out, okay, not only am I learning what compare and contrast is, but I'm also learning all that language that comes with that, right? And everything that I'm learning in it is in English. I think that really focusing on either, I'm gonna focus on compare and contrast. So therefore, because in my classroom setting, I'm able to speak uh, in their native language, I can present this content in their native language, right? This idea of compare and contrast in their native language. And then now that I know that they know what compare and contrast is, now we can compare and contrast with new content but they're not having to worry about what is compare and contrast. Dr. Helene Marshall and Dr. Andrea DeCapa would be so proud of your succinct and clear explanation and summary of MALPS. After having interviewed them both, I was like, yep, she, she got it. She got this. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about now the application of MALP. Can you walk us through three examples or a unit of how this looks? And then, yeah, let's just walk through that first. Yeah, so um, so one of our first units um, this year really focused on providing personal information um, as where you're from and like where you are coming from and where you are living now. Um, and I knew I wanted students to really be able to zoom out of their current location, so here in Waltham, um, to where they were located. Majority of them were in Central America and Guatemala. Um, for my Afghani student, um, she wasn't here during that lesson, but for her, it would have been Afghanistan. Um, and this required for them, this really required uh, them to understand concepts of geography and academic skills of being able to apply this, geog this uh, new concept of geography in understanding a whole map and the whole world, right? Like maps, um, and, and, and that's just really abstract um, because a lot of our students, right? They, they just knew their place and their, their homelands and then now they're in this new context. If they didn't get, you know, I think that's a very American thing that uh, we get to go on vacations and explore the world, you know, but our students, again, we're, we're getting to know who they are. And um, again, this is not the opportunity that a lot of them have had. So I decided to really start in our literacy class um, where I focus on students understanding location on a map. Uh, so keeping, again, the MAL principles in mind, I decided to use uh, geography content knowledge um, needed to be taught. I, I realized that content, the content of geography needed to be taught in students' native language. So we started by reading a text called Where, Where Are You From? Uh, by Jamil Said uh, Mendez, but in Spanish. So what's awesome about these new children's books that they're in Spanish and in English. Um, so I read it in Spanish with them. I wanted students to make connections to the characters, um, which was a young girl. So I'm thinking of, you know, born here. Um, and her grandfather, who it was born in uh, the country, and, and it was Buenos Aires, Argentina, that they were talking about. And to really think about, to make connections with these characters and think about their, start thinking about their homelands, right? The places that they left. 
Um, and as we read the book, I asked students to think about their surroundings back in their native countries and to draw what their surroundings looked like. Looked like. So we read the book, we talked about it, we did a book talk. Um, we really had more of like a discussion and, and they were really into it. And then I had, okay, now it's time for us to draw um, what our homeland looked like back home. And um, just like the book did, you know, the grandfather, the little girl has this question of like, grandfather, everyone asked me where I'm from, like, what does that even mean? And so the grandfather goes in to describe the mountains and the fields and just goes on to describe their native land. So I said, you, you know, we're gonna do the same thing and through drawing. Uh, so they drew it and it turned out to students from that drawing, it turned out to students writing descriptive poems about their homelands, using their drawings as an inspiration and a scaffold to the written word, right? We talked about it, now they're drawing, and now they're getting to articulate and express um, and then write it down, right, through their poems. And then some of my SLIFE students are semi-literate um, in their native language, so that I was able to provide them a graphic organizer to help guide their writing. Um, and they answered questions about what their native location looked like. So where it was located, what it looked like and its characteristics and what they loved about it. And then I gave them a simple poem frame, I am from, and which they filled out from using that information from their graphic organizer. So really just scaffolded everything. And then my SLIFE students that are emergent readers and writers in just language in general, um, I had them name and label the different things they drew. And from there, I sat with them and talked, uh, talked through about what they had drawn. Uh, so I really was helping them articulate and express. And I asked them why. And then they were able to use the poem, uh, the poem frame that I had provided the other group and use the labeled uh, drawing that they had to really just fill in the graphic organizer. Um, so because they had already talked about it with me, they had already labeled the different items in their in their in their drawings. So they were able to just fill out the graphic organizer after that, um, similar to the other group. And then all of the students recorded flip grids of them either reading their poems or describing their 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 drawings uh, to really practice their orality and getting used to this idea of just expressing themselves too. Because a lot of um, what I've noticed that my emergent like uh, language learners, just readers and writers in Spanish and in English, is that their orality, uh, really articulating words, it's, it's um, they need more practice with that to really express themselves and use language. Um, so I really want them to continue to practice that. So they recorded that on Flipgrid. And then I had connected geographical location to their lives. So I made it relevant to them, right, my homeland. Uh, from there, I introduced important content vocabulary in Spanish and in English, such as continent, geography, world map, location, state, city. And I wanted students to understand what they, um, where they were before and now, and hopefully inspire them to want to see the world and travel one day. Um, so then students looked at the world map and found their native countries from there. And when I asked them where they were from, they usually give me the city or the country in Guatemala, um, the, the countries divided in departamentos or, or states like the US. Um, so since majority of them are from Guatemala, I really wanted to make the connection of Guatemala um, uh, it, as a country being similar to the US in the way that it was divided geographically. Um, 
So within within the the country of Guatemala, we were looking at the map, and I said, okay, well, where you said that you're from um, uh, San Marcos, let's find where that that what department departamento San Marcos is in. And from there, right, they were able to go from something that they know, the city, to the departamento, so a state. And then, okay, and that, within that, is in the country of Guatemala. And then now look, let's look at Guatemala, where Guatemala is on the map, that Central America, which is North America. So we were able to, again, go from what they know to something abstract. Um, and they were able to then connect that to the United States. Um, so from there, we 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 went from, um, like I said, the familiar to the abstract, and then we circled back to their current location. So students made a location book, um, very simple. So they just drew their current home, so their current surroundings, and they wrote their current address, and then they wrote their city and drew surroundings of their city in Waltham, and then the state of Massachusetts, and then the country of the United States, and then the continent of North America. Um, so this whole time, this project was really relevant to their lives because it was their previous home to their new homes. And they were really able to learn from each other in the different places that our class community comes from. Because even though we come from the same country, students come from different areas in Guatemala and it's very different. So it was really cool to get to see that and get to know that. Um, and then I'm gonna try to like quickly go over because I was like, I'm going in so much detail. Uh, but then um, after the location books, uh, I wanted to continue to make connections to how their location is relevant to their lives. So in English class, I wanted students to practice providing their personal information, such as their name, their home address, right, their current address, and a phone number. A lot of our students don't even know how to say their home address. It's something that, you know, in app, job applications and just basic uh, important information that they should be able to provide in English. Um, and, and some of them didn't even know it in their native language, so really practice that. It's just, uh, it, it gives them advocacy and just empowerment as well, because they need to know where they're located. So to continue to make, um, uh, after that, what I did in English class was we started, uh, we started at the school office and I introduced them to the secretaries and the nurses. So we went to actually take a walk to our, our, our school office and they got to know the space and the location right in our school and students then co-created a book about our school office uh, and this is an English class and for this project I really had students work in groups so each student had a role one student was a writer and the director I called it and the other student um, were the actors which meant that they had to role play scenarios in the school office um, and then they took pictures of themselves role playing and then they had to record a dialogue that we had prepared of the secretary asking them, you know, what is your name? And then they had to say, what is your home address? And they had, and students prior to starting this book, students had already been practicing this key language of what is your name? My name is, and had been practicing their actual personal information. So their home address and their phone number. And I had them write it in a note card and they had to practice it at home and with each other. Um, so they were familiar with that language. Um, and then this really, this project really gave students the opportunity to again, apply abstract geographical knowledge 
and apply it to create scenarios of real world settings, such as the school office. You never know. The secretary might ask them, what is your name? What is your home address? What's a phone number? Um, so they were really putting this and making it relevant to their lives. And then finally, our unit ended by creating individual books on Book Creator. And Book Creator, shout out to the creators of Book Creator. I love that program um, to describe their lives from their previous location, so most of them in Guatemala, to their new locations here in Waltham. So as a class, we read a book called From Cuba to the US. Um, and this book is a part of like the Inside USA resources by National Geographic Learning. Um, and after we read this book together, students worked with a partner to answer comprehension questions about the book. We talked about the main character's different locations and how she felt uh, from moving from her beloved Cuba to Miami, Florida. And it was great to, because students got to sort of learn about new geographical places, Cuba and my, Miami, Florida. Um, and they were able to use their geography skills to locate these places, right? We were putting that into practice that we had already talked about previously. And then I gave them a simple text template uh, with a similar structure to the book that we had read. And they were able to write similar books. They wrote their own from uh, San Marcos to Waltham, Massachusetts, um, describing their home, their family, and their friends in their native country versus their home and their family members and friends here in the US. Um, and this was all done in English, which was really impressive. And I love these books. And then the entire unit really, you know, we got to the end and the entire unit was really building on and keeping Malp's principles in mind. I am just so, just <laughs> listening to your conversation and your description of the unit, I was like, wow. I, I can see all the principles integrated in. And I wrote, several words as you were describing the unit i said it's relevant the content is comprehensible for students it's affirming and sustaining the connections to their uh to their previous homes to their current homes but also their culture by using uh their their spanish right and then it's collaborative but it's also those individual elements and then it's so integrated all together and i was like wow this is such a massively weaved designed unit how what were the kids experiences um so a lot of them were really just excited to talk about their their home um lands and i think that a, a lot of the time what we really forget and i think what makes this paradigm so important is again that relationship building you know, it's just so important. I think that I, 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 the relationships I've built with my students and because we really are a community, right? They weren't sort of giving this task and said, okay, now figure it out or do it separately. And I know with COVID it, it's very difficult, but I think that we really need to get creative with really allowing students this opportunity and make them realize that learning is not, it's not, you're not by yourself. You know, if we think about the way we've learned and we've developed, you you haven't done it on your own. You know, you really are a product of your environment and really the opportunities you're given and the reassurance that it's okay. It's we're learning, 
right? You're, you're, it's okay to get help. We're going to do this together, but then you're also, you're sharing responsibility, but you're also accountable. And our, my students were really easily able to, um, and they've taught me a lot too, through this process. It wasn't perfect. There were many times where I had to like reteach and redo something because I was like, okay, they're not getting it. What can I do for them to really get this? Um, so I appreciate this opportunity that you've given me too, to really be able to reflect on that unit. Um, and as I said earlier too, I'm super excited to see where we're at by the end of the school year, because I think the more I become familiar with these principles and the more I put them into practice, um, I think my students, I can really see uh, the impact and the environment and the conditions I've been able to provide in my classroom for my students to be able to thrive and feel successful, but then also learn about each other, about me and feel connected to education. And I think that that's my biggest um, uh, concern is that there's so much disengagement and so much disconnect, um, especially coming to a new country that we want to integrate our students and we want to have the conditions for them to feel like that. Um, so I think that, that that's what this unit did. And, and it was really awesome to sort of see them and feel connected and learn from them. Um, and I now have, you know, all these videos and, and books for them to go back and read as well. What did you notice about the MALP principles, like this framework as you were designing this unit? So what I noticed was that, again, it just constantly reminded me of how important it was for me to really focus on my students. And really, it wasn't about me and my agenda as a teacher, right? It was mostly, it really revolves around this partnership of me and my students. I need to take them into account of what it is, who they are, and what what I can do to best um, provide the best instruction, but that really makes it meaningful for them and connects to their lives. I think that um, a lot of them, again, we think these students have not had, they have not been in a formal education setting. You know, their ideas, some of them have, you know, histories of just not, um, not having the best experiences in their schools or just not having consistent or those connections with their teachers, right? Um, so really my, my mouth has really impacted and, and has shown me that um, it goes beyond my classroom and really building connections with them in the community too. Um, it's really, it's all about the conditions that we are creating for our students in our classrooms, in our schools, in our communities, uh, for them to really feel, you know, connected and free of like the stress that is continuously, you know, on them. Because again, I was an English learner myself. And again, even though I grew up here, one of my most traumatizing experiences, I still can recall, you know, just, it was all just like talking, but I just didn't understand anything. And I was in what, first grade? And imagine what th that does socially to you as well. And now imagine middle school, right? They're still trying to figure out. And this is where I say my, my psychology background has definitely come into play a lot too. Um, and I'm super excited that I, I, I've been able to use that, um, you know, that training and that, that like theory that I had through psychology um, in my BA that I've been able to put that into practice too. And mouth, I just love it. And like I said, it, it really has been an anchor that really guides and helps me reflect um, for everything that I do in my classroom. Just hearing your unit, because uh, I also teach social studies, but I also teach 
geography uh, for one of my units. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go back and listen to this podcast and redesign my whole unit. <laughs> and I'm going to channel you, Leslie. So thank you it's for cool. that. When you were talking about MAP, I was like, yeah, you really are embody, uh, embodying the concept of mutually adaptive um, and like mutually responsive, where, where we are starting with students in mind instead of starting with the content and the skills and the curriculum in mind. It's, it's, it's like two wings of a bird. Like you, you need both to be able for the bird to fly. So you need the skills, the curriculum, the content, but you also need to make it relevant to students' ex lived experiences. And that's exactly what you did in that uh, geography unit. Uh, when you now design your lessons with MALP in mind, um, what is your lesson planning process like or your lesson planning lens like? Yeah, so when I'm trying to figure out, you know, um, I'm, well, I'm still trying to figure out lesson planning and being a teacher, uh, but I guess, um, and, and that's just part of our job, right? Adapting and learning, right, every year. Uh, so something that really has helped me a lot was um, MALP's teacher planning checklist. It's just a series of questions and they're like more reflection questions that to this point where I'm constantly asking myself already those questions. And again, it starts with my students in mind and as I, as I get to know them more, um, I, you know, I, I'm continuously, and I think I'm just obsessed with my job because sometimes I'm thinking about ways to really make this meaningful for them, to really um, help them connect uh, to, you know, this new, this new setting that they're at. Um, so it really starts with them in mind. And I'm really always thinking, how can I make my lesson more um, relevant to them, connected to their lives? Uh, so I'm also, you know, in this checklist is also asking you all these questions, right? Like, how is this immediately relevant to their lives? How is this helping my students develop and maintain interconnectedness? How am I incorporating shared responsibility and individual accountability? How am I scaffolding, right, this written word? through my oral interaction with my students? How, what academic way of thinking am I trying to reach, right? Um, what decontextualized task am I using or practicing with them? Um, what familiar language am I using? Am I gonna teach this in Spanish? Or now that I have my, my Pashto speaking student, I have to mostly focus on, I, I still translate language, I still go back and forth from Spanish and English, but I most, you know, I, I keep her in mind as well because Spanish is not her native language. So I don't want her to feel even more disconnected. Um, so really, and, and how am I going to use familiar language and content um, to present different activities? So I go through those questions. And again, at this point, I've already like, already do them just naturally. Um, and then I'm also, I'm also, you know, always like center my, my, um, my my lessons and really sustaining my students' identities, as I said, right? And creating this learning environment where they're participating, right? And learning from each other and the value of who they are uh, while they're adapting to what, what is happening now, right? Their, their change of location, their new setting. Um, and really, if we do that, and like you were saying earlier, really it requires me to adapt my instruction, but just like my students are adapting. So I'm, I'm constantly challenging myself that it's not about me and my agenda as a teacher, but everything has to really start with my students in mind and understanding that they're already doing that work of adapting, 
right? And changing. And now it's my turn to sort of adapt and meet them where they need. And Dr. Marshall also says that, you know, it's a continuum, right? And we're trying to push our students to, you know, progress and develop and, and grow and transform. And we are too, right? Our instruction, and I think about it next year, my instruction is going to be different. This geography unit might look a bit different because depending on the type of students I have in front of me. So it's really student forward, student centered. And I, I always start my lesson planning with thinking about my students and what they need and what I can do that is in my power um, as the teacher to really make them um, be able to get what they need to be. Well, I'm so impressed. You don't sound like a third year teacher. You sound like <laughs> a teacher who's been teaching for three decades. So very, very yeah. impressed about your growth in the future. Um, can you go back to that part where you talked about academics, way, academic ways of thinking? Like I know I've asked Dr. Capua and Dr. Helene Marshall about that. I'm still a little confused about that. Like when she said like, oh, kids, compare and contrast, I'm like, but kids compare and contrast in collectivist cultures as well. So can you clarify that for us a little bit? Yeah, so, and to be 100% honest, I, I was similar to you. I was like, what What do we mean by that? So Dr. Marshall really, she she was like so funny. She, she's funny. And she's like, just think of, of Bloom's taxonomy, right? Higher order thinking, critical thinking, right? Um, we, we see, yes, students are able to compare and contrast. They probably do it all the time, but really knowing the, the name for it. Right, the language that comes with compare and contrast, the, the, the graphic organizer that comes with compare and contrast. Again, teachers just assume that students are used to this way of thinking, but they are, they probably have compared and contrast, but they don't know that it's compare and contrast. They haven't used a graphic organizer that looks like the two circles in the middle, and they're not used to that, right? So it's our role as the teacher to help them understand that this is what you're doing. Yes, you've already been comparing and contrasting, but now we're putting language to it, language that is going to be in all of your years here in the United States, because every classroom does compare and contrast, every, or CER, you know, you, it's like claim evidence and reasoning, you know? My students use reasoning, they, they have their opinions, they state claims, but they don't have the language to understand. That's what it's called here. It's called a claim. And this is called reasoning and this is called evidence. So we really have to get creative with how we present these. Because again, a lot of students that grow up just like myself here in the US, they, these things are just automatic, right? Because you get these, these, these uh, tasks, these academic ways of thinking are built from primary school, from elementary school, where our students, you know, they're learning compare and contrast in the real world through their actual practice with their families, but they're not saying, oh, I'm gonna teach you how to compare and contrast right now, right? So that's what I see academic ways of thinking. It's really academic discourse, I think, really focused on you know um, higher order thinking and really putting names to it. Um, and again, my students are cognitively able to do so many different things. It's just me being able to explicitly point and say, this is what it's called, compare and contrast. This is what we're doing. This is how we're applying now this content of world maps. And now we're applying it, right? We're using that information to now get us somewhere else and learn something else and think about something else. So really, uh, that's what I think about academic ways of thinking. Really think about formal school setting. Our students don't come from formal school settings. Their processes of learning has been very different to what we think about formal school settings here in the United States. So 
really that's what I think of academic ways of thinking. Well, once again, you have so clearly explained something that was quite difficult for me to understand after even the, having two of the people who created that concept explain it to me. I'm just slow. Uh, they explained it really well. You just explained it even clearer for me. So thank you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Let's do the last question before I go to the traffic light teaching. Um, what is one suggestion that you would recommend teachers to start with when they're implementing MAUP? I get to know your students and their families. I think the family engagement is very important too. And um, we're um, so amazing that, you know, we live in a 21st first world century where, you know, technology really helps us be able to find ways to be able to communicate with families or find resources, um, even if we don't speak the family's home, home language. But I just think it's just so important to really get to know your families and, their, and, and the students. Um, and, you know, going back to Dr. Mary Jo Rendell, who I'm super appreciative because she solidified that importance, right, of partnerships. And really, I think that that's what teachers need to realize that when we're when we're thinking of mal principles, uh, the mutually adaptive, right? We're not just asking one our students to do the work, but we also have to transform and change um, and create partnerships with our students, their families, the community that they're part of, to really be able to provide the conditions for our students to feel connected in their new context, right? And to build rapport with them um, and their families. We, I, I want my students to feel like they can trust me and know that I am, you know, trying to do my best, but then also expecting the families and the community and them to do their part. But it's not just asking of them, but me staying the same and thinking that I don't have to do anything. Um, so I think that that really is my biggest, my biggest suggestion is really get to know your students, who they are, and build that trust and that relationship with them. Right. Yeah, relationships with parents are really important. How do you do that, by the way? Um, so again, I, I, my, my asset of being a native Spanish speaker and a lot of my students' uh, families are uh, native Spanish speakers. So I, I honestly do phone calls uh, once a week. I try to continuously. And, you know, I grew up with technology and texting and calling. So to me, it's just like very normal. And, and families seem to be really um, open to that. And, and I've really been, and I'm very fortunate that my caseload isn't like super long where I can completely definitely build this profile with families that I'm continuously calling and um, they're always feeling free to call me. So it's really a phone call away or a text. Um, and our district has really put an emphasis on family two-way communication as well. So um, we're definitely encouraged to in our school to continuously be calling homes, checking in, um, and and um, that that's what, that's what I do. I call, I text. Right. With technology now, even you, even all of us who, for example, you don't speak Pashto, but you can use apps um, like uh, there's an app called TalkSpeak, or uh, I'm not getting the thing right at Talk. Um, anyways, there's an app where teachers can go and text back with parents in another language. The parents receive that in another language, that language, they text in their language and it comes back into a language that you want, that you want to read in. So uh, that's kind of cool. It is really cool. Yeah. 
We use Remind in our district. Yeah, yeah, similar to Remind. We're able to translate, yeah. And then we also have um, Lexikey, I believe, which is like, you know, you set up an appointment, you call an interpreter, and then they call, and it's like a three-way call. Um, so there are ways, um, but again, I, I think that 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 really come, it should be coming from us, right? We, we really need to go that extra step to really get to know our families, because that's the only way that we're going to be able to really make our our instruction really student-centered. Okay, perfect. Um, let's go to the end of our podcast. Uh, let's talk about traffic light teaching. So what is something you ask teachers to stop doing in terms of working with life? Start doing and then keep doing. Okay, so the red light, um, stop thinking that, you know, our students already come with, um, you know, these, this academic ways of thinking, right? This this idea of of uh, formal education, right? Our students um, don't already have these cultural assumptions, right? Stop with those cultural assumptions because Western style education is very different from where our students are coming from. So stop assuming. Um, and start actually learning and getting to know and having these conversations um, and building those relationships with, with students. Um, so then it goes with my green light, right? Please, um, please, please, please build relationships with your students. I think that um, I just love my students to pieces and they, they, they're, they can feel that, right? Human connection and it, it goes beyond language. It's just really feeling loved seen, appreciated, and, you know, remember when you were a student yourself, right, your favorite teacher, the people that you were mostly impacted were the ones that made you feel loved and seen, um, so really please build relationships and take that time to build relationships and listen to them, um, because you, you never know really the impact that you're making on their lives, and that's going to transfer into instruction, and it's going to be a buy-in for them to really be fully invested in what you're trying to teach them. Start doing. Um, so start doing. Start start getting creative. I think that the the mutually adaptive, right? You you want to adapt, and I think of this word of transforming, right? Our students are transforming into new um, into new um, beings, right? They're they're mixing their old selves to their new selves while they're still developing, and it's a transformation that's happening and an adaptation that's happening. Same with us. I think that I we really need to start getting creative and tapping into our creativity and um, really bringing in interdisciplinary, right, uh, instruction into our, I'm not a geography teacher, I'm not a social studies teacher, but I, I took on, right, at this, this unit of geography, because I believed that it was really going to impact my students, and I was thinking of them, so really not start being creative and, and thinking that, you're just an ESL teacher, just this teacher. No, like start bringing arts and crafts into your classroom, start uh, bringing theater, start bringing drama, start bringing all these different arts and, and interdisciplinary um, content into your classroom because it's just gonna make it even a more rich learning environment for our students. And you're going to transform into an even better teacher and our students are going to transform and then we're all mutually adapting, right? <laughs> Well, Leslie, let me tell you, as I was listening to this podcast uh, from the beginning, when you started talking about MAP and your the context, when we got into the to the, like the, the, the core of this conversation, I was thinking of two words. Wow, I am so impressed 
by your clarity and your eloquence. And I, and then I was also so inspired by your lesson plan, your unit that you talked to your students about that you brought all the principles of MAP and you made it really clear. I think this is one of the last episodes in this life series and you've really uh, gifted us a, the clearest example of what this unit would look like when we apply the principles of working with uh, SLIFE students and making it culturally responsive, making it comprehensible, making it relevant for students. I know that you talked about, before we started recording, you talked about like, I, you know, I want to write a book in the future. And I know just <laughs> by the way that you talked with the clarity in which you talked, but also the heart in which you shared and the detail in which you described your lesson, I'm thinking, wow, that book, the roots are already taking place, digging deep, and the pages are already being written day by day, lesson by lesson, interaction by interaction. You are ready in the future to write a book to share with us so we can learn and be inspired and to continue to work with students like your kids. So thank you so very much. Oh, Todd, no, thank you so much. As I said, I'm fangirling right now. I truly appreciate your words and definitely appreciative of everyone that's been part of, you know, my learning experience. And I'm just super grateful. And um, I love that you're speaking things into existence. And I, I, I take it and, and I agree with you. So I really do appreciate your kind words. This is just the beginning of a very beautiful, impactful career. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to episode 124. Today, we conclude our SLIFE series with Leslie Garcia to learn how she designs mutually adaptive and culturally sustaining instruction specifically for SLIFE. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. This is one of the clearest, most eloquent, and teacher-friendly conversation about SLIFE. Leslie Garcia will share her interpretation of Dr. Helene Marshall's and Dr. Andrea de Capua's MALP framework. Her explanation is accessible and succinct. The most important part of this conversation is when she talks to us about her geography unit designed with MALP principles. You can really see how she made the unit so relevant, comprehensible, and sustaining for students. This conversation was really like a master class or walking into or spending time in Leslie's class for an entire unit to see how we can design instruction for SLIFE. Now, on to today's podcast. 